something that I struggled with is judgment of other people. I shouldn't say struggled in past tense. It is a struggle. I know a lot of things that should help from the learning that I've done, but I still find myself judging. For some reason, the judgmental thought, the critical thought, this person is shallow, this person is not capable, this person is immature, feeling like that was more true and more realistic than the ideal of this person being an ashama, being perfect. It felt like a jump, a leap from reality. Hi there, I'm Tanya, and you're listening to episode 25 of Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss spiritual ideas in human terms. Today's episode is sponsored by Mushka Witkis and is dedicated to Sinai Scholars, JLI, and Chabad Campus for the incredible work that they do. Thank you, Mushka, for making today's episode happen. To sponsor or dedicate an episode, please reach out at humanandholy@gmail.com. This podcast is run off your sponsorships, and I'm so grateful to every single person who has reached out to give. Before I introduce today's guest, I have an announcement. <laughs> today's episode is the last of season one. Human and Holy is going on break for the next six weeks until our one-year anniversary, which is Yotis Kislev. We're going to be kicking off season two with a really special celebratory episode in honor of Yotis Kislev, which is going to be unlike anything that I've ever done. And I'm really excited to bring that to you. So if you want to get a notification when it's live, you know what to do. Hit the subscribe button and you will be alerted as soon as it's up. The new season is coming with a big change for the podcast, but I'm obviously going to keep it a surprise until then, just because it's more fun. I'm excited to share the new changes with you. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and I look forward to being back soon. In today's episode, I speak with Chayaletsu Kernik about a core Hasidic concept, our thoughts, and what role they play in the way we view the world. She talks about merging the ideas we learn with our actual lived experience. And instead of trying to control our thoughts, training them to see the world in a godly way. Chayla speaks about learning powerful spiritual tools that she could relate to conceptually, but weren't penetrating her thoughts when she actually had to make judgment calls about other people or scenarios in her life. Join us as we discuss what it looks like to teach our minds to think godly without ever turning our lives into battlefields. Hi, my name is Chayla Kesselman, now Tsikernik. I grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa. I currently live in Crown Heights. Been here for over 10 years, I think, at this point. 
I have three beautiful boys, Kanai Nahara, and I teach in Base Rifka High School. Thank you, Kyla. Thanks so much for being here. I'm so glad that we made this happen. Can you start by introducing the topic that we're going to be discussing today? Okay, so I want to share and discuss the topic of machshava, thought. It's something that comes up all over Hasidus. I feel like it's a secret power tool. The power that it has is possibly overlooked for sure by me. I would say I've been thinking about thinking. <laughs> I love that you chose this topic. I think that machshava specifically out of machshava meaning thought out of speech and action usually gets glossed over. So I'm excited to actually spend time thinking about what that means. Can you tell us a little bit about where in Hasidus there's emphasis on machshava, where in Hasidus there's emphasis on thought? Are there any specific sources that you've studied that are particularly meaningful in explaining what machshava means? So as I said, I've been teaching high school and actually ever since I'm 19, I've been teaching high school. Now I'm 29 and I've always taught Tanya and it's really a consistent theme idea that the Altareba brings up time and time again in various contexts. So that's really one place where I think it's a major focus and other places is the Friedrich Rebbe's Lekote de Burim. The series opens with a discussion on the power of Machshava. The Alter Rebbe really brings up two things, that our control, the way that we can really be successful in managing ourselves is through the fact that our mind can control and be the driver of our speech, our action, and our whole character. That's really the basic level. And then the part where it gets deeper and more powerful is that the way that we can transform internally, develop our character is with the thoughts that we think. So typically when we learn Tanya, we kind of say, okay, the maximum you can do is be a Bainani because you're not going to be able to change yourself internally, you can control your behavior. The feeling is that I'm going to be this person that has one thing going on inside, another thing going on outside, and those two parts of me are going to be not on the same page. There's going to be a a constant battle. But that's from chapter 16, really, till the end. The Altarebbe is talking about things that we can think about, which will create a harmony between the inside and the outside. If we have a narrative going in our thoughts, then our internal experience can be congruent with our behavior, with our external experience. It doesn't have to feel like this act that I'm putting on. Once it's the story that is in my head, then it feels like it's me and it becomes a sincere and authentic experience. Oh, nice. The Rebbe Rishab says that the most basic level of Mayakshalat is when the mind is just controlling the heart. And even if the heart wants something that the mind doesn't want, the mind will be able to lead it. And then the deeper level being that the mind is so present in the godly reality that the heart naturally is led by the mind. So if the mind is 
really present in a certain space, then it's natural for the heart to follow. So that basically the mind and heart are going to be in sync if we focus on training our mind to be thinking a certain thing. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting because I always, I mean, not always, but whenever I started learning about my Akshalatahalev, I had this idea of control, control. Even though it was control through my thinking, it still felt forced because that's the association with the energy of control is there's force involved where I'm imposing something upon myself. And what I'm starting to realize is my thoughts are really my inner narrator or even my inner teacher, the part of me that explains things to myself. You know, you could have the type of teacher, so to speak, that is imposing on the students, you know, as an authority. You will do these things just because I said so. Or you'll have the kind of teacher that will explain the value and then the students will want to do it on their own. And I realize that I am that for myself, meaning in my mind, that's my classroom. You know, I'm the teacher and the student. And when I come to myself with my Akshalat Al-Halev in the control sense, you are going to do this and that's just what you're going to do because you have to, because you should, because it's the right thing to do. There's that tension and that disconnect. But when I come with a story, with a muscle, with a process, and I talk it to myself, right, I teach myself into it, so to speak, then the student part of me, the listening part of me is coming to it from a desirable, more natural and smooth place. I love those words that you use, the difference between imposing and explaining, that both are using logic to guide the person or using logic to guide ourselves. But in one scenario, we could be imposing something on ourselves. In another, we could be gently teaching and guiding ourselves. Yeah. For me, what my journey has been that I love to learn and I love learning Hasidus and I've accumulated a lot of very powerful ideas. So I have this knowledge bank of really inspiring and deep and meaningful and objective truth and all of that, I was finding that my knowledge and my experience were not connecting. For example, learning a mimer, the Rebbe Rashab's mimer on Avas Yisrael Hecholtzu about how we perceive other people through the lens of the ego versus how we would perceive them if we removed the ego. And then knowing that and thinking, wow, that's so powerful, that's so true, that makes so much sense. And then that being it. (laughs) And kind of like storing it, you know, like I have a closet of clothes, I have a closet of ideas, like amazing, love that, put it on the shelf. And then realizing like I have to put it on, I have to wear it. (laughs) It's not just an idea. When will it go from being an idea to being something that when I look at another person, when I'm interacting with another person, that actually becomes my perception of them. And that's through actively thinking about it, like bringing it up in a moment of interaction with another human being and saying to myself, right, like the teacher in my head saying, okay, it's go time. Like this is the moment 
to put on that hat, to put on that perspective, to bring it here. You know, I tell my students when we study for a test, we learn the information to put it on a paper. Sometimes you're just gathering information for the sake of gathering information, but when do you wear it? When do you bring it and and test drive it? It's not a given just because I know something that I'm going to think with that perspective, like knowing a perspective versus thinking with that perspective are really different, turns out. You would say that the shift specifically happens in the moment, in the moment when you could tap into this tool. If you are able to tap into it and you do so recurringly, then you basically habituate your mind to think in that way, like to think like the mimer that tells you that you could put your ego aside and perceive this person without your ego blocking the way you see them. Yeah. And also sometimes like in preparation for a moment, because like in the actual moment, it's sometimes hard, but knowing I'm going to engage with the person and then saying what's going to be my approach when I come into this conversation. Part of this is like choosing to arrange my thoughts for the day, for the moment. But I think it has to actually happen before because usually in the moment it's rolling. So you're not necessarily going to step out. There is a preparation of knowing that this would apply in a real scenario. Then when a real scenario comes up, you're ready to apply it. Oh, nice. So you're saying even while studying, think about the real life scenarios that you experience where you could possibly apply this concept. Yeah. So it's like, let's say Hasidus will explain, you know, Das, the third of the intellectual components, Chachma bin Das. Das is described as intimacy. Like the Torah uses the words, the Adam Yada Eschava to describe the intimacy. So when you become intimate with an idea is when you see how it's really personal. So I could read a Hayam Yaim or I could read in a parak of Tanya that Hashem loves me, loves a Jew unconditionally. And I could think, wow, that's so cool. But then to sit with that and say to myself, I am unconditionally loved and what does that mean to me and where do I see evidence for it and what does the reality of being unconditionally loved mean about my value and my worth and then in a situation saying oh this is that unconditional love coming to me or this is a hug from Hashem but having made that connection at the point that you understand the idea to then personalize it and relate to it and in doing so, when we train our mind to think the way that the mimer thinks or to think the way that the chassidus that we're studying thinks, then it could actually penetrate in a situation where we want to call upon it because that's how our minds think. It's not something that's separate from us, but it's actually that we've retrained our mind to see the world in this godly perspective. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think also part of the struggle is thoughts are constant. The Rebbe mentions in a mimer by Yishlach Yeshua, which she speaks about how impactful it is that we are in control of our thought, speech, and action, and how much potential that gives us. So he says, not in these exact words, but the implication is people often think that thought can't be controlled because you're always thinking. So 
that seems like a high bar when I often have this discussion, there's like a stress that comes up because if I'm always thinking, that means I always need to be controlling and that's too much. It sounds like I'm not going to be able to breathe. That's why, again, moving away from the word controlling your thoughts to choosing thoughts. You're always choosing thoughts. And if you tune in to which thought am I choosing, which story am I telling myself now and asking yourself, is this thought sparking joy? Do I want to keep it in my internal house? And often the answer for a lot of us is no, this thought is not sparking joy. And then giving yourself permission to let go of it. Just because it showed up in my head doesn't give it value or doesn't mean that it's good or doesn't mean that it's true. I know for me, I trusted my thoughts because they were mine and they were in my head. I guess we have the same thing with stuff. You know, that's why people have a hard time of throwing away their stuff. It's like, it's here and it's mine. How could I just throw it away? And then, you know, this whole movement of does it spark joy and is it just cluttering and creating mess? It's not servicing anybody for it to be there. So kind of having that same realization about thought, does it belong here? Do I want it? Is it helping me? Is it making me more productive? Even simple things like throughout my day thinking I'm tired. And that just being a recurring thought that runs through my head. I'm choosing really to run that channel. And obviously that's not going to increase productivity and it's going to generate more or keep me tuned into the fact consistently that I'm tired. Whereas if I could say I'm tired, but I still can have a productive day and hopefully get a good night's sleep. And then that's it. We're not thinking about that anymore for today. You know, thinking about other things. It's a different day. I'm saying that's like a very simple example, but we can do it with so many things. I judge a person and typically I take that judgment very seriously and being able to say to myself, who says that's true? You know, who am I to assess the value of another, another human being and then take that assessment so seriously and then say, okay, I'm not choosing to hold on to that judgment. I'm not choosing to hold on to that thought. I'm moving on. I want to choose a different thought that's going to help me connect with this person that's going to bring me to see their value. Okay, so what I'm hearing is that there, there's one level of choosing our thoughts, which is a longer process, choosing or training our minds to see the world in a certain way. And then there's in the moment, choosing the thoughts that are currently popping up and choosing to keep the ones that are serving you, choosing to keep the ones that are true, choosing to keep the ones that are going to be conducive to you living a happy and productive life. Would you say those are the main two points that you're saying? Yeah, and I think they're connected because how something becomes the way you think is if you keep choosing it, you get more comfortable with it after you've chosen it a few times. And then you're like, oh, okay, this is working. It's, it's a good one. I'm, I'm going to keep it, you know, uh, like, a, like a dress that you borrow for a friend a few t- you know, you borrow it once and you're like, oh, I love this dress. It looks good on me. And you ask her again. And then after like three times asking her if you can borrow it, you're just like, okay, I'll buy my own, (laughs) send me the link. So I'm going to try out this thought a bunch of times and I'm going to be like, okay, I'm keeping it. It's a good one. Oh, nice. (laughs) 
I love that analogy because the truth is that how do thoughts become our thoughts? Often a lot of the thoughts that we have that we think are our own original thoughts that are negative are usually also coming from an external source and we adopted them as being true. Right. That's a really good point. Just sometimes because it was negative, we decided that it it was more worthy. (laughs) (laughs) Of being valid. (laughs) Of being valid. Yeah. Okay. Chilek, can you give any specific examples from your life where this understanding that you could choose what your thoughts are. You're not a victim to your thoughts. You have the ability to train your mind to think a certain way in the moment and before the moment through learning, et cetera, how that influenced certain relationship that you have, situation that you were dealing with, any of it. Okay. So something that I struggled with, which is what I mentioned before is judgment of other people and I shouldn't say struggled in past tense it is a struggle and then realizing that I know a lot of things that should help from the learning that I've done but I still find myself judging and then realizing that for some reason the judgmental thought the critical thought this person is shallow, this person is not capable, this person is immature, feeling like that was more true and more realistic than the ideal of this person being an ashama, being perfect. It felt like a jump, a leap from reality. And I consider myself a critical thinker and I'm not a, you know, I'm not a fluffy, floaty person. So I need to be honest. I need to be realistic. I need to be practical. I really felt stuck. And I was speaking to a person who I looked up to and was someone who I reach out to for guidance. And she said to me, why when experiencing another person who said the negative conclusion is more true? Why do you trust it more? And in that moment, I was like, it just hit me. And I was like, wow, why do I feel like negativity judgment is more true? And she was like, let me suggest that maybe the idealism presented in Hasidus is actually the fact. That's truth. That's objective that's fact. Then it really, really hit me so strongly then that it's all backwards. It's not like I I had it all backwards, meaning it's not like there's reality as I experience. And then I can choose this high road of like overriding reality and using the lens of Hasidus to look at people and see their value. And it's like this whole stretch and it feels very, for me, very, out there and fluffy and then it's okay but between me and you this person is really dot 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 and then I was like no it's actually not the case this person is actually in truth the way that God sees them and if I want to really know who they are then God's version of them and how God sees them seeing as he created them is to be trusted more than mine. And Hasidus is telling me how Hashem sees a person, which means Hasidus is telling me who a person really is. So it became funny at that point that I trusted my perception of them more than 
God. And then I was able to almost laugh and say, wow, <laughs> how ridiculous that I would have given so much credibility to my perception over God's. I guess when that penny dropped, then it just became, even if I think that thought, I don't trust it anymore. It's just like, oh, there's me distorting reality. Wow. The judgments obviously show up, but my attachment to them has been severed. I like that a lot because it, it leaves room for our own judgments to crop up without being threatened by them because we recognize that they might just not be valid. Like you don't have to believe every single thought that you think. And if you know that the true reality is complete, it might be different than the one that you're perceiving, then you're able to laugh it off, as you said, and say like, okay, that's how I see it, but that's not actually how it is. Exactly. And then I'm saying this goes in absolutely every direction when it comes to fear. I'm afraid when I, again, assess reality and decide that it's not functional for whatever reason. And then I'm like, but actually, the fact is that God is running this place. And he turns out very capable. So because reality feels either chaotic or unpredictable, because I have a version of order and predictability and realizing like, oh, I'm a creation. So I don't have to panic if things aren't working out the way I think they should be because I'm not God. And I do trust that he knows what he's doing. So a fear will come up, but how much credibility the perspective that the fear is based on has is so much less when I'm just like, okay, who is inventing this fear based on what premise? And then realizing, okay, God is in control. He has a plan. That's fact. Let me lean into that. Okay. That's such a great example. And I have a question, which is, what does it look like to, on the one hand, respect the natural fear that someone may experience when life feels chaotic? And on the other hand, recognize that that fear might not fully be founded in the truest reality, which is that God is taking care of you. So if it feels like no one's taking care of you, everything feels chaotic, things are just falling apart, and you still want to lean into the trust of God's reality, how do you hold both the human experience and that godly reality together when there could be a lot at stake? I mean, it's hard. It's hard because I wouldn't want to sound like I was undermining someone's pain. But let's say with my, with my child, so a fear will come up, he'll have a reaction to something and a fear will come up that he's going to be this type of person. And then I'm panicking because how is he going to manage life? So I have to acknowledge, meaning I'm only going through this process if I'm tuning into all of that as a fear to begin with. So listen, sometimes there's an overreaction before I've even tuned in. And then I'm like, okay, that clearly was the overreaction to his reaction is because there was fear. So let's tune inwards for a minute. What is that fear? That fear is that he's going to be an adult that can't manage because he never learned how to regulate his emotions as a child. And then the notion behind fear is that I have some sort of control. And then I'm saying to myself, but I don't have control. A, B, you know, the future 
it hasn't happened yet. So first of all, I have no idea what's going to happen. And also I have no control. God is in control and he's designed my child. And my job is not to design my child. My job is not to create my child. I've been given a person and my job is to create the best environment for his potential to emerge. So I'm always moving myself out of the center and replacing it with God. I'm not in a position to evaluate. I'm not in a position to control. I'm not even necessarily in a position to assess or decide or conclude what the future holds, what the value of this person is. That's not my place. So really it takes a weight off and then I could just do my best in that moment and leave the control where it belongs. I realize that that is all thinking, that that process to become aware of that and to transfer it requires tuning into my thoughts, choosing which ones are going to stay, which ones are going to go, which ones are going to be rearranged and restructured. The outcome of all of this is that that also actually does affect the people and the reality, then what I think can also be what I generate. And that's what the Friedrich River says at the beginning of Lakote de Burim, that thinking a certain way about somebody impacts that person, even if it just remains in thought. If I will constantly be in fear that my child will be a certain way, I could create that reality, unfortunately. And then obviously, in the positive, if I can let go of that and replace it with something more true, then that will be what what I generate. So there's a lot of power in our thinking. Trachgut vetzeingut is something that also seemed a little bit aloof to me. And I realized that it's not necessarily a futuristic thing, it's a now thing, is that if I'm thinking of this situation from the place of objective truth, from Hashem's perspective, that's thinking good, that's thinking positive, that's thinking healthy, then I'm good. I'm good right now. I'm okay right now because I'm thinking the good. I'm thinking good as God. I'm thinking God's perspective. And then I'm good then that's not good. It will be good. It's good. It's good now. Not only will it be, it will also be good because I will generate more of that in my life. But it's even good now because that's the place that I put myself in. You know, the Baal Shem Tov says the place where a person's thoughts are, that's where he is. So it's like we actually just get to design our world through our thinking. And we're always thinking That's also a reason to choose our thoughts because they're constant for the same reason that it's difficult to choose your thought because it's always moving. It's a very good reason to choose your thoughts because they're constant. You really want, you know, like something in your house that you're always going to see, it should be beautiful. So if your thoughts are are constantly present, um, it even says like sinning in thought is worse. It's closer to you. And action comes and goes. It's done. You could move on. You're not constantly in that action, but because your thought is your reality, it's your world, it's the place that you're putting yourself in. If you're thinking it, you're connecting to it. That's why we want to be very selective in what we think. I love that so much. I love how you shifted that from controlling yourself or restraining yourself to 
making the conscious effort to align yourself with the godly reality. I think the example that you gave of judging another person is so perfect for this because do we see someone else and try to restrain ourselves from seeing them in the way that we think is the true reality? Or do we say, no, this thought that I'm thinking right now about this person, I don't have to give it so much validity. I could recognize that there's a truer reality that I could try to align myself with in this moment. Instead of trying to control my human instinct, I sort of train my human instinct to be more elevated and more godly. Yeah, totally. Beautiful. It switches from being a battle, a war, a fight, to being like a lesson, a class, a story, that the whole energy around managing ourselves, I guess, lightens up. A lot of us, when we try to control ourselves in that way, you get this like rebellious spirit, like, no, that's not true. (laughs) Seriously, (laughs) I don't mean that facetiously. Like, I really mean that, like that element of when you try to control something, it sort of like pops up again and again and again and again. It's like, you can't control me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll I'll come out. And then it's that binge, you know, Uh, the example that I've often heard different people give is the diet culture versus eating healthy. Am I controlling myself and forcing myself to eat a certain way and then allowing myself these days of getting my fix because I'm then going to have to go back on this diet, which is an imposed reality, which I don't right. feel in sync with versus I'm choosing this over this because I want it more because I know what it will create for me. I know the health that it will bring me. So I'm very much the leader of this uh, project. I'm not the, the loser who's being bossed around. I'm very much the leader of this project of choosing a reality for myself that serves me. I love that. It serves me. And it's also the truth (laughs) because, you know, we, as people, Ultimately, we really don't want to settle for anything that isn't true. So if we had to convince ourselves of something that wasn't true, we would also resist, right? Even if we convinced ourselves in the most kind way, we would eventually get frustrated. But the amazing thing is that the good is the truth. That's what's actually real. So I'm closer to MS when it's good and when it's positive. And then all that information that you have stops being weapons that you use against yourself. Seriously. Yeah. And then they start being like, like you said, lesson plans or things that you can tell yourself (laughs) in the moment to guide you. Yeah. As opposed to, I love it. It's very holistic. Yeah. Hey, Kyla, ending off, can you give practical tips you'd give to anyone, to me, to someone listening on how to incorporate this idea into their lives? If someone has been coming from a place where they have been any negative thoughts that they have, any thoughts that aren't aligned with the godly reality, they've been sort of trying to beat them out of existence and control them or restrain them, push them out of their life. How would you suggest beginning that gentle process of teaching ourselves to think differently instead of trying to control ourselves? Okay. Great question. Stage one is tune in. Not necessarily do we even know what we think meaning that's not a given that we are aware of what's actually going on in our minds. Sometimes the awareness only comes when it's spoken or when it's acted upon. And there was obviously a step before that. Everything does start in our thoughts. So listening to yourself, 
what do I think? Asking yourself that question. What are the thoughts that spend time in my mind? What are the mottos? What are the mantras? What are the beliefs that keep cropping up in my head? Am I always complaining inside my head? Am I always judging? Am I always panicking? Whatever it is. What are those thoughts? So I identify them. And then I can ask myself, what is the truth? What are the facts? Now, sometimes that's depending on if you have learned or you haven't yet learned, that's where the learning would come in, the research, the research would come in. So maybe I have this recurring thought and I say to myself, it's not a thought that I want to hold on to, but I don't know any different or I don't have a replacement or I don't have a different idea of reality. So I guess it's true. Well, I guess it will have to stay because I don't have anything to replace it with. So at right. that point, you want to reach out. You want to open. You want to dive into Tyra Hasidus. And you can even go by topic. You can go by very specific topic. The Rebbe's letters are actually a great place. If you want like a direct answer for a specific thought, most often times there's someone wrote to the Rebbe about it and the Rebbe gave them the right perspective or the right thought to replace it with. But yeah, any there's so many resources. So that's the point that you turn to a role model, a teacher, a text for the truth. And then that conversation with yourself of, I know I think this way, it's not serving me. And now I know the truth and I want to bid you farewell. I want to excuse you and I want to dismiss you and say, you don't serve me. You could go now. Misjudgment, misfear. Thank you for coming now. You can go. Thank you for what you've taught me. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for bringing me to a truer and deeper place. You've served your purpose. You may now leave and welcome your new found truth and positivity. And then Go out, go out on the streets and share your outfit with everybody. Let everybody admire its beauty and enjoy the feeling of wearing this new thought and the connection and the peace of mind and the calm that it brings you. First of all, I love how you put it into like a, a couple step process. It's like so clear in my head. I want to fully understand the bridge between two and three. When you learn the new information that you can replace, you say, okay, this thought that I have is not valid. I want to get rid of it. I've learned the true thought that I can replace it with. And then, like you said, you could have a full closet of all those true thoughts, but actually replacing it in your mind and being able to reteach yourself, oh, when I see someone and I naturally judge them because X, Y, Z, well, the truth is, is that they have a soul, they have infinite potential, and that I'm not seeing all elements of them, et cetera. How do you make that leap, practically speaking? Like in real life, how do you make the leap from knowing the, what the true thought should be and then actually teaching your mind to think that way? I think the dismissal is an important part because we will always be thinking. So if we almost picture ourselves replacing, if you reorganize a space and you decide from now on this vase is going on this shelf, even though it was always somewhere else. So you may want to label the spot or you may want to make an announcement, right? This is the new location for this particular piece. And then always bring it back there, right? If it, if it travels, if somebody uses it and it ends up in a different place, I bring it back. 
I bring it back and I bring it back till everyone get used to, to I get used to that's its place. Again, I have tuned into the thought that I have naturally, my default thinking. I see that it doesn't serve me. So I'm letting go of it. I'm dismissing it. And I think even appreciating its value is helpful because I'm not rejecting myself and my personality. The fact that I had those thoughts is an important part of my process. It's what brought me to this deeper place. So I don't want it anymore. And this is what I'm going to replace it with. And from your bank of ideas, you do need the specific relevant thought that's going to replace this one specifically. Let's say I'm thinking about a particular person. So I know a general idea that people have infinite value. I want to now apply it to this particular person that I'm thinking negatively of and say, this person is a soul. This person in God's eyes is whole and perfectly capable. And I am going to look for evidence of that. And I'm not going to hold on to my previous perception because I know it's not true and I don't want it anymore. So I'm going to bring in the thought, the new one, apply it specifically to this scenario, this person, this particular fear. I'm going to, you know, if the thought is in more general terms, if the idea is in more general terms, then I need to make it specific to this particular situation. And then the practice of the my, my negative thought comes up, but I have its replacement. So I switch it and eventually it starts becoming more seamless, more natural, hopefully to the point where maybe even the negative thought won't come up anymore. You'll just start seeing the person in the positive light and you won't have to do that step actively. It'll switch over. I love that. That's such a good answer. That that point of finding evidence for the true reality within that person is such a good application of the idea, for example, of seeing every person as an infinite soul. Yes, every person has an infinite soul, but often if you see, if you're judging someone for being shallow, vain, whatever it is that you could be judging someone for, we find evidence for that untrue reality. And then if you want to shift your perspective to the godly reality of that person having an infinite soul, you then have to go and look for evidence for that within the person themselves so that it doesn't feel like that huge leap, but you actually see evidence before your eyes. And then, like you said, do it enough times and habit just becomes your second nature. Yeah. And know that you will find evidence because it's the truth. Right. And sometimes you might need to give yourself time, like all things. <laughs> it's a process. Trial and error. I like it. All right, Kyla, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for sharing. A thought cropping up in my mind doesn't mean it is valuable or true or worth keeping. We can train our minds to see the godly reality in a way that feels gentle and honest. When someone lets us down and our instinct is to title them selfish or uncaring, we can do more than just introduce another voice that says, no, she has a soul, she has infinite potential. We can actually dig for practical evidence of the godly reality and bring proof in our lives of that person giving to us. When we feel unequipped to deal with life's challenges, we can do more than just introduce another voice 
that says, remember, everything God does is for the best. We can actually, again, dig for evidence of the godly reality and bring proof of God's goodness in our lives. I can bridge the divide between my human instincts and my soul, not through coercion or control or even sheer willpower, but through a compassionate and constant redirecting. Eventually, in small ways, we'll discover an internal transformation, a mind that can patiently redirect itself towards the truth, even from the most difficult of thoughts. Elokai zakinina betoratcha uvimitzotecha lechaberet nishmati tamidinecha mechaber mechaber. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find me on Instagram at the Tanya Project or via email at humanandholy at gmail dot com. If you enjoyed today's episode and could take a quick second to leave a rating or review, it would be so appreciated and it helps other people find the podcast. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, today's episode is the last of season one. We are going to be back with season two in six weeks. If you want to get alerted when season two is live, hit the subscribe button and you'll get a notification. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and that you have an absolutely wonderful day.